Welcome back to another episode of the Transform Your Life podcast. I'm Angela Hauk, founder of the international online coaching business, Team Ange. I'm an expert in building muscle and losing fat, a natural figure and fitness pro athlete with the UFE, and a lover of everything personal development. I'm a mom, a businesswoman. Most days, I just feel like a hot mess trying to keep it all together. I spent the first two decades of my life overweight, tired, hating vegetables, and living off Pepsi. I got sick and tired of feeling tired every day and decided to transform my life. This fitness and nutrition podcast is dedicated to educating and empowering listeners on all things training, nutrition, and personal development. I'm on a mission to help you improve your body, achieve your goals, live a confident and fulfilled life stepping into your full potential. So let's help you transform physically and mentally to a person that's been hiding underneath all along. Let's do it. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. Today I am chatting with the one and only Jill Coleman. This beautiful soul started JillFit.com in 2010 and she was also the co-founder of Metabolic Effect. So I've been following this Wonder Woman for so many years and just really resonate with her messaging, really resonate with the things that she teaches about. And today's conversation is really about her signature program, Moderation 365, which is a way to really get away from that cycle of deprivation, binging, deprivation, binging. And I know that's something that I certainly have struggled with. And I know that many of you have probably struggled with as well. So today's conversation is a fantastic opportunity to get expert advice on how you're able to integrate Moderation 365 all of the days of the year. So Jill really, she was a fitness competitor back in the day. She was on a bunch of national covers of fitness, did a bunch of fitness modeling, and um, then just realized that that lifestyle was not fulfilling. It wasn't making her happy. And unfortunately it meant a few hours of cardio a day, a whole bunch of training, and just a life that was not fulfilling. So really her transition after that point is how she's been able to make this lifestyle stick using training and nutrition principles that make it that she really likes lifting now. She really enjoys the foods that she eats and she's been able to connect with her own body to find a strategy that works, not only for herself, but for so many other women around the world. Her passion really lies around coaching and teaching people about mindset, body, and business. And you guys, she's just one of the most brilliant minds. You guys are going to absolutely love this intelligent conversation that we had. Um, She's so down to earth. She also loves chocolate, wine, and coffee, just like myself. And uh, yeah, she's just went through a pretty remarkable story. Today's conversation, we also talk about how she was able to move on from heartbreak. So her husband had an affair a few years back and she had to go through that and has been very open on social media about what that experience has been like for her. So we dive into that in today's conversation. And we also have an opportunity to just really talk about how can you set your mindset up so that you can be a winner in life. I'm so grateful for this beautiful conversation and I just can't wait for all you guys to hear it. So enough from me. Let's get into it. My conversation with Jill Cole. 
Coleman of Jill Fit. Let's just kick things off for people who maybe don't know who Jill Coleman is. Can you tell our audience a little bit more about who you are? Yeah, for sure. So um, I own a company called Jill Fit, which is an online fitness and health company. Um, And I started just, you know, kind of my origin story is I was always an athlete growing up. I actually got my first job at a gym when I was 15 years old, just for the free membership. And so for me, I was one of those really lucky people who was able to, you know, just kind of fell in love with exercise at an early age. Went to school for exercise science, ended up getting my master's in nutrition. And then from there, just personal trained for about 10 years straight, just kind of crazy hours working with a lot of clients and getting a ton of clinical experience. Uh, but I, I wound up getting myself into a place where I was really starting to become obsessed with exercise and nutrition. I was doing competitions. Um, I was doing a lot of fitness modeling and really, you know, the gym was my life and it became a little bit neurotic. And so right when I started my business uh, at Jill Fit as a, as a blog in 2010 was when I really decided I need to figure out my nutrition and my exercise because I wanted to make my business successful and I needed to have the mental energy and the actual time to be able to do that. So at that point, I kind of, you know, did a lot of soul searching and a lot of mindset work and a lot of kind of mindfulness work and started doing something that I call Moderation 365, which is now what I teach. And that's kind of my nutrition philosophy. And since then, um, it's been amazing. It's been so great to help people all over the world. And now I do mostly, I would say, business coaching for fitness professionals. So people who um, are personal trainers and want to kind of do what I did and exit the gym and, and learn to leverage the internet. So yeah, it's been, it's been a huge, long journey of about 20 years, but it's been super fun. Oh, so awesome. So Moderation 365, what in the world is this? And uh, what are the components that make it up? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for asking. You know, um, it's exactly what it sounds like, to be honest. Moderation 365, it is how to eat the same every single day of the year, whether it's Saturday, whether it's the weekend, whether it's the holidays, whether it's, you know, you're on vacation, whether it's a Monday. Um, For me, I did a lot of yo-yo dieting. So what I call the deprived then binge cycle. And I was working with clients that were starting to do this as well. So I was helping women get up on stage and, and do figure competitions and bikini competitions. And what I noticed was I was contributing to what I felt like was neurotic behavior. And I saw it in myself too, where we would wake up on Monday morning and feel so just guilty and shameful about maybe overindulging over the weekend or binging over the weekend and vow to be really strict during the week. So wake up Monday, have all my food ready, put in Tupperwares and try to be perfect with my eating. The problem was by the time Thursday or Friday rolled around, I was so deprived and I felt so, um, you know, kind of depleted and mentally just totally drained from trying to diet all week that I would just say, screw it. And I would eat whatever I wanted Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and really, and then repeat the cycle week after week after week. And I got to a point where I had to recognize that as much as I wanted to be quote, super clean or super tight on my eating, you know, what we considered to be a competition diet, right? People are getting up on stage who are super lean and have a lot of muscle on their frame. It's kind of like the, the epitome of what we think about when we think about physique. And I was trying to do the kinds of diets that I was using to get up on stage and they were too depriving as much as I wanted it to work. And I wanted to be able to be someone who could be super strict all the time. Um, I just couldn't. And the reality was it wasn't working for me. So I was like, you know what, how can I take the edge off a little bit sooner? sooner, earlier in the week, or even, you know, maybe more frequently so that I don't feel this compulsion to binge come the weekend. And so moderation 365 came out of that. So when I would wake up on a Monday morning and feel shame and feel guilt about maybe overindulging, my tendency in the past would have been to tighten up, do extra cardio, you know, do all these kind of things to tighten up. And it was really against 
you know, felt counterintuitive to give myself what I call preemptive cheats or kind of nutritional gimmies earlier in the week. So for example, on Monday, you know, you wake up and you're kind of like, ah, like I'm going to be super clean today. It's going to be a great week, et cetera. But what I would do is I started giving myself on Monday night, maybe I'd have a glass of wine or maybe I would have a couple, you know, squares of dark chocolate or something like that, that traditionally would have been off limits. And it was hard because I didn't really feel like I needed that at that point. I was like, ah, oh, I'm good. Like I'm, I'm going to feel good. I feel, I want to eat clean. I don't need this. But I started using these preemptive cheats to take the edge off sooner so that by the time I got to Tuesday, I felt satisfied. And then I'd have a little preemptive cheat on Tuesday. Like maybe I would have some, you know, cheese and, um, you know, things that nuts and things that previously I wasn't allowing myself to have. By the way, these aren't really like what I would consider cheat foods, but maybe they're not what we typically see on a super strict diet. And then by the time I got to Wednesday, I would feel satisfied still. So by the time I reached the weekend, I didn't feel this huge compulsion to binge because I didn't feel as deprived. And so what happened over time was I kind of was able to even out the highs and lows in my eating to the point where literally I eat the same on Saturday that I do on Monday. And it's not perfect and it will never be perfect. But what it is, is it is satisfying and it is healthy for the most part. And I'm able to kind of maintain, not only maintain my weight and maintain my dress size, but maintain my sanity. So many people are caught up in that Monday, yeah, that Monday start over mentality, absolutely. So for those that are listening and they're like, oh my goodness, Jill, this is me, I wanna give this a try, where would they start with it? Like I know for you, you kind of said you were adding those little things into your Mondays and adding those little things into your Tuesdays. But I think that a lot of people are saying, oh my goodness, I couldn't I couldn't just have one glass of wine. I couldn't just have two pieces of chocolate. So where do they start that they can really build that trust so they can go about doing what you were doing and be successful with it? Yeah, no, it's such a great question. And I think, you know, because we have this mentality of these certain foods are bad and good, right? So we have like wine is bad you know, uh, having slices of cheese is bad. Having, um, you know, chocolate is bad. Having ice cream is bad. And we kind of put these foods up on this pedestal by saying like, oh, I can't be around those. I don't trust myself around those foods. And by the way, all of that is valid, mostly because most of us are casualties of the dieting industry. We're casualties of the dieting culture. So what I mean by that is we've kind of grown up with people saying these foods are bad. So if we're around them, all of a sudden it's like, I can't have a glass of wine because if I have a single glass of wine, now I'm quote drinking wine and I might as well just drink the entire bottle because at some point this food is going to be off limits again. And so for me, it is, uh, starting with an abundance mindset of I can have any food I want anytime. And that's really, really hard because we're traditionally think about like, these are bad foods, right? If I told you, you know, you can have, um, you know, a half of a donut every day, you'd be like, no, there's something wrong with that. But to me, it's like, cool. What if I had half of a donut and instead of making it bad or make it mean that I'm eating junk, quote, junk food, I just literally strategically built that into my day. I'm a, I'm a, like, for say, I was a huge donut fan. I'm not really. But for some people, like, they just love donuts. So instead of being like, I can't have donuts and, like, that's the mentality, why not strategically build in half of a donut every single day so that you don't feel the compulsion to overeat because you know that you're going to be able to have another half of a donut tomorrow. And I know it sounds kind of neurotic when you say it, like, you know, what's the big deal? Just eat the whole donut. The big deal is it's not about the calories, it's about the practice. The practice is in mindfulness and moderation and taking bites of things and feeling trusting that you can have another bite of it tomorrow and that it's never going to be off limits. So, you know, I think one of the things that most people are scared of when it comes to eating moderately or being more mindful is that they don't trust themselves around food. But if I told you, you can have this food every single day, it's appeal or it's illicitness would probably dissipate a little bit because you go, okay, well, I can have this every day. So instead of trying to prevent, 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 actually give yourself permission to have that thing. And the outcome is not what I care about. I don't care if you have six donuts the first time. 
what I care about is the practice. So like if I say you can have donut every day, like the first couple days you might have, you might overindulge, you might have a couple donuts, you might have like, you know, two, three donuts and you're like, oh my God, this isn't working, this isn't working. But over time, if you feel the abundance of I can have a donut every day, that feeling, you don't need to overindulge because you know you can have it again tomorrow. So the outcome I'm not so worried about, especially when you're practicing, over time, and I know this is hard to really believe, it feels counterintuitive, but over time, you do start to eat less. You know, I talk to moms all the time. I don't know if you're a mom, Angela, but I talk to moms all the time who like have their kids' junk food in their cabinet all the time for the kids and they never touch them because they're just always there. So this is called exposure therapy. They actually show in psychology that the more we kind of expose ourselves to certain things that it helps us practice mindfulness, but there's a gap. There's a trust gap there. Most of us don't trust ourselves around these foods or we don't trust ourselves to, you know, have these things in the house. And so there's this leap of faith that needs to happen first where you go, okay, uh, you know, if I gain a couple pounds, maybe I'll gain a couple pounds. And like, if that happens, it's, it's a means to an end. The end is quitting the obsession. And I guarantee you over time, you're going to either lose that weight or you're not going to keep gaining. And I think the thing that we're scared of is that we're going to keep gaining ad infinitum and we just don't. And so there is a little like leap of faith that needs to happen. And what I found is the people who finally do that end up getting the best results and they can do this long term. But if you constantly trying to hold on and control and control and control, you're going to constantly feel obsessed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I can definitely relate to all of that. I have a three-year-old. So it's, yeah. yeah, it's so uh, it's so interesting becoming a mom and also being like uh, a figure competitor as well. I think we have uh, a couple things in common in relation to that. But the interesting thing for me was this most recent prep that I did last year. I completely did this approach of like protein bars and energy drinks every single day and got to like the leanest I've ever been by just being like, okay, in the past I've done these crazy, crazy diets where you cut everything out and you get really lean, but then you come off stage and you're like in this cycle of all of these things have been so forbidden for so long. So last year for prep, I said, you know what? I'm just going to work in all the things that I absolutely love every single day. And I prepped for nine months, just kind of like slowly chipping away versus something that was very extreme from the way that I had been eating prior to. And makes a world of a difference when we're not having all of these forbidden foods. So I just commend you for coming to this conclusion, creating the program, and then sharing that with the sharing that with the world because there's so much power in the message that you're sharing. Now what about for what about for restaurants or those kind of settings? What does moderation 365 look like when you have this whole smorgasbord of things that are on a menu? How do you practice what you teach in that kind of setting? Yeah, no, you know, honestly, they've it's some of the best settings that you can practice in. So one of the things that we hear a lot in the diet industry is, well, I can't start my diet because I'm going on vacation or I can't start my diet because the holidays are coming up. And so my goal with all the people that I coach or with my students is that like, you should be able to do this anytime. You should be able to do this. You should be able to take moderation 365 on vacation. You should be able to take it on, you know, during the holiday, you can take it over the summer. Like, you know, all these things, you should be able to take it with you. And the same thing is true for restaurants. So I don't know if you, I don't know if you know Angela, but I haven't cooked in eight years for me, uh, cooking. And I had like PTSD from competition prep and all the disgusting food I was eating. So for a long time, I was just like, you know what? And for me, it was a practice and trust being able to, you know, use more convenience type items. It doesn't mean that I have fast food. It just goes, okay, can I do takeout salads? And can I, you know, go to restaurants and can I, you know, use protein bars and protein shakes and maybe some of these more healthy convenience foods. So I don't have to cook. It's just not something I want to be doing. And, and by the way, I don't think not cooking is healthy. I think if you can cook and you like to cook, you should cook. 
cook. I just decided it wasn't for me. Um, but so I do a lot of restaurant eating and it's one of the best places to practice because there's, you know, we tend to, I think most of us have this idea of, Oh, this is a special occasion. I'm going to eat. Like I have to go all in because if I don't go all in and have like the grossest thing on the menu, then it's not worth it. Like I might as well, cause I'm here. And so what I started doing was I just started treating going to a restaurant, like any other meal versus making it like, I have to get this thing and having a lot of food FOMO. Like, Oh my God, if I don't get like I'm at Cheesecake Factory, of course I have to get a piece of cheesecake. It's like, you don't really. I know how you feel like you have to, but really you don't have to. So um, my practice is always the same. This is uh, a little bit of a distinction between a choice and a decision. So a choice is where you just decide ahead of time what you're getting. So the, the menu doesn't matter to me. Like I can go anywhere. I can literally go to McDonald's. I can go to uh, the Roost Chris. I can go to like any like super nice restaurant. I can go anywhere. And my choice will always be the same. I'll always prioritize, you know, leaner protein, tons of veggies, and maybe like a little bit of starch or something like that. Like I'll always prioritize. So it doesn't matter. Like I'll go to McDonald's and I'll get that. I'll go to a super nice restaurant and I'll get that. I don't ever look at the menu and go, so a menu would be like, I'm going to decide based on what the menu has. So for me, I'll, you know, open it up and I'll look at the stuff, but I'm always looking for protein, veggies, and maybe like a side of starch, something like, like a healthier starch. Usually that's maybe a salad. Um, so I don't go like, Ooh, let me see. I'm at like Outback Steakhouse. I have to get the, like, you know, whatever their like bloom and onion is like, I just don't even take that into account. So I think the practice is deciding before you hit the restaurant, the kinds of foods that you're going to be getting. And I know based on my own kind of biofeedback and my own experience that like I do well on, you know, low carb, high vegetable diet, high protein diet, maybe moderate fat diet. And for someone else that might be a little bit different, they need more carb, they need less fat, whatever. But I know from my own practice that that's going to be my choice no matter what restaurant I go to. It doesn't mean that I won't like, you know, enjoy a bite or two of dessert here and there, have a glass of wine, but I'm always looking at it from the perspective of like 80 to 85% is always going to be that protein, veggies, moderate fat, maybe a little bit lower carb. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How did you come to that? Um, self-awareness, that piece of, oh, this feels best for me. Because I think for some people, they don't even know how to necessarily read biofeedback if they haven't yeah. went through that whole process, Jill. So can you tell us a little more about what you're tuning into and what that biofeedback is that you're looking for in determining what feels best for yourself? Sure. So um, this is it's a great question. It, you know, it's a practice. And I think sometimes we want to know the answer faster than we are, can get it. So a lot of my work is in managing expectations. So for someone who is really struggling with food obsession and doesn't want to release those reins of like, I need to count macros and I need to count calories, like all these kind of things, that's a control mechanism, right? So like getting to that trusting point, that feeling of abundance takes a little bit, like I said, that leap of faith and it takes longer than you want it to. I think for some people, they assume like, oh, this is just a different diet. Like moderation is just a diet. I'm going to slot myself into it. I'm going to just try it out and see if it works for me. It's like, no, this is a lifestyle. But like in order to get to the point where it feels like a lifestyle, it takes like a minimum of a year, a minimum of a year. It took me about three years because I was like, didn't know what I was doing. Now with the education that we have in place, people can do it a lot faster, but it's going to be uncomfortable for a little bit. And so part of that education is the biofeedback piece. And what that means is literally it's very simple. It is a mindfulness practice of, of eating something and then noticing how you feel later in the day or later in the week even. So for example, um, here's an example for me. Like I love the taste of eggs. 
and I love like breakfast meats and stuff like that. But I notice that they do not keep me full. Some people can have like a couple eggs and be like good to go for four hours. If I have a couple of eggs, even full eggs, I'll be starving in 30 minutes. And so that is something that like for someone else, it might work great. I know for me having eggs and bacon and stuff like that in the morning, uh, just opens up my appetite. And so for me, I prefer something like a protein shake, but I wouldn't have known that if I had just been like, Oh, people say that you should eat eggs in the morning. I'm just going to eat eggs. But I did. And then I noticed that I started, I was just ravenous the rest of the day. And I started eating a lot more as a result of that. So that's an example of going, okay, does this food increase my hunger or decrease my hunger? Does this food increase my cravings or decrease my cravings? And for someone who's just getting started with this, it might feel like, oh my God, this is so hard. Like this feels so mentally draining. I have to think about all this stuff all the time. Mindfulness is, it's a low level of thinking all the time about how you're feeling but it is um, automated. So it's not like obsession. It's not like obsession feels like I'm thinking about it all the time. Mindfulness is yes, it's thinking, but it's like an automated thinking that's happening all the time. And it's a practice. And so some of the ways that I teach my students how to do this is asking specific questions throughout the day. Sometimes we need prompts. So for example, you know, maybe setting a timer on your phone for like every three hours not to eat every three hours, which is like kind of more of a dieting mindset, but instead when your alarm goes off, you just simply ask yourself a question around how hungry am I right now from a scale from one to 10. I think if we don't have, we don't understand biofeedback, we don't understand mindfulness, we just go, we only have starving or stuffed. Those are the only things we feel. We're like, I'm either ravenous or I'm stuffed. Most people, that's the only two things that they can feel. But mindfulness goes, am I 30% full? Am I 50% full? Um, on a scale of one to 10, how hungry am I right now? On a scale of one to 10, how much am I craving right now? Most of us don't think about that. But if you set your timer and you have a prompt, when it goes off, you just go, okay, cool. On a scale of one to 10, how hungry am I right now? And then you go, oh, I'm like a seven. And then in your mind, you go, okay, cool. I could probably eat within the next hour. That's a mindfulness practice. It's a really small prompt. But what it does is it gets you to check in with like literally how hungry are you? How are you craving anything right now? How full do you feel? How satisfied after this meal do you feel? And so we're just not like to your point, we're not used to doing that stuff. Like I think dieting culture has made us stupider in a lot of ways because it has gotten us to the point where we don't even think about that stuff. We just go, I eat every three hours, regardless of how hungry I am or how not hungry I am. And so really biofeedback is just getting back in touch with your physical sensations. And it's a practice. Mindfulness is a practice. So you have to, however long you think it's going to take, multiply that by three. And that's probably more accurate. Mm-hmm. Amen to all that. Oh, my goodness. I um, It's so interesting. It's like people feel as though, oh, I have to eat breakfast or I have to eat lunch or I have to eat dinner. It's like, who came up with the fact that those are even real things, you know? Like, like I think the worst thing that we can do is just always try to fit that kind of schedule day in and day out. Because I, I even as women, like some weeks we are hungrier than others, like just makes sense of the menstrual cycle, right? So I think when we oh. ignore that completely, we really lose that sensation of uh, what our body is trying to tell us. So thanks for sharing all of that, Jill. Oh my gosh, me too. I mean, you know, and I think if you're listening to this and you're going like, oh my God, I could never do that. or And believe me, like, the thing that I'm always up against the most is like, Jill, that must be great for you, but I could never imagine doing that. You guys, I had such a dysfunctional relationship with food like for 10 years. And like, I always tell people if I can do it, like anyone can do it because I was an all or nothing person. Like I couldn't have anything in the house. Like I couldn't touch a cookie or eat the entire bag. Like that was my entire reality, my entire life. I had a huge appetite. If someone had told me, 
you know, well, if you don't exercise as much, you might be, you won't be as hungry. And I'd be like, no, you don't understand. I'm starving all the time. Like, that's how I just thought I was just destined to have a huge appetite forever. And what happened was when I started practicing mindfulness, like I literally, my appetite did regulate itself over time, but it, it takes a lot longer. And so if you're thinking about this, you're like, well, you must be one of those people. It's like, no, like I was as dysfunctional as it gets. So, um, you know, if, Hopefully you're listening to this and you can kind of go, okay, I'm, I'm ready to practice this. And that's really all you can expect from yourself. You're never going to be perfect with it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, now you brought up a good point there in terms of exercise. So I know that you used to exercise quite a bit. Now, does your moderation 365 also come into your exercise strategy? It's not. It's actually moderation 365 is just nutrition philosophy. But we know that exercise obviously impacts the you know amount that we're craving, the kinds of foods that we're craving, the amount of hunger we experience, etc. So um, my history was just a ton of exercise all the time. Like I said, I just loved exercise. To me, I just love like I was from the time I was like nine years old. I was doing Jane Fonda like aerobics tapes. Like I just love that kind of stuff. So for me, I always was an athlete. Did a ton of exercise, and as a result of that, as anyone who's been an athlete knows you're just hungry all the time and you don't really have to watch calories cause you just, you just eat what you want. And then, you know, you exercise it all off. And so that was my reality for a long time. And then when I got into competition prep, that was really the first time I ever paid attention to my nutrition. Like literally I, I just was like, didn't even know anything. I didn't, it was like, what's a carb? Like how much, I was like, how many carbs are in a chicken breast? Like I just didn't know. Right. So I, um, I really started educating myself on all of that. And what I found was as I started to be more mindful of my nutrition and cutting calories to get up on stage, I was craving constantly, a level of craving that I had never experienced before. Like every single second of the day, I was trying to prevent myself from eating chocolate. And the reason why was because the exercise, that the kinds of exercise that I was doing, the volume of exercise and the moderate intensity, long duration cardio, as anyone who's ever run a marathon or trained for a marathon knows, like you're just starving all the time and you crave sweets. And that's just the physiological response to doing more exercise. And so I remember feeling as though, you know, I would overindulge, or I would binge and I would just go, Oh my God, I have to just do more exercise. And then the more exercise I did, the more I craved. And then the more cravings I had, the more I ate. And then the more exercise I had to do. So it was this cycle of like trying to constantly burn off calories through exercise, but it was, it was a feed forward cycle, right? Like where I couldn't really quite get out of that. So the way to get out of that was to do the thing that I was so terrified of doing, which was cutting back on my exercise. Cause I felt like that was my, my weight management tool It was exercise. And so cutting back on that felt like, Oh my God, I'm just going to gain all this weight. But what happened was, and this was like, I couldn't believe that this happened is as I started slowly cutting back my, I mean, I was doing two to three hours of cardio a day, like crazy amounts. And I started cutting back just by like 15 or 20 minutes over a course of months, like over maybe a course of like six months, I ended up getting down to like 45 minutes of cardio, which is still way more than I would ever do now. But I remember getting down to like 45 minutes of cardio and actually experiencing a decrease in hunger and cravings that I had never dreamt I could have experienced. And so I was like, wow, it really does self-regulate. Your metabolism is very intelligent and it really does self-regulate if you have the trust if you have enough trust to do it. And I, I frankly just got to the point where I was like, I just can't, I remember crying, being waking up every morning and going, oh my God, I have two hours of cardio in front of me today. I'm so exhausted. Like I can't believe I was crying. Like, I, cause I felt like I didn't have a choice. I had to do it. And once I just got to the point of like, I don't care, I will literally gain 50 pounds cause I just can't keep doing this. And that was the point of like relinquishing that control. And to my surprise, I didn't gain the 50 pounds, you know, I probably gained a couple pounds, but for me, it was worth it 
in order to not be so obsessed with food and to not have that lifestyle anymore. Like having to go to the gym for three times a day, are you kidding me? It's like a full-time job. So being able to, you know, even if I have to gain a couple of pounds, for me, it's worth it to not have that lifestyle anymore. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So what does workouts look like for you now then? Are they short? How many times are you going uh, to train per mm-hmm. week? What does that look like? Yeah, so I pretty much train every day. Um, and I, it's not that I recommend that for people necessarily, but for me, that's just the, the way my body works because I travel quite a bit. So on travel days, I inevitably like won't be able to train. So if I'm home, I'm training. Um, and I do short duration, high intensity workouts, mostly weight training, probably maybe 10 minutes of cardio a day max, maybe interval training just to get warmed up maybe 10 minutes uh, max. And then I usually do like one major lift, like a like deadlift or bench press or shoulder press or squat or something like that. And then I'll do a little Metcon, like a maybe 12 to 15 minute metabolic conditioning circuit. So it's mostly weight training, you know, I would say 80% weight training, um, but all high intensity. So my workouts never longer than 40 minutes. Awesome. And I know that that is something that you share with the world, right? Those types of workouts. And and that's kind of your training style in the exercise program you deliver, correct? Yeah. So my, uh, my private couple programs, but my signature course is called fast physique and it's a 40 minute, six time a week program. It's, it's pretty much exactly how I train. Um, and I do a lot of leisure walking as well. So, you know, I do high intensity stuff and I do super, super low intensity stuff. I don't like power walk or anything, but I do a lot of low intensity walking and things like that to help with, you know, maybe decreasing my stress response and just for kind of peace of mind, but, you know, trying to get 10,000 steps a day. Nice. Nice. Cause you live in LA, right? Yeah. So we're pretty lucky here. The weather's pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I bet. I bet. Now, I wanted to shift gears here. And I really want to talk about um, the whole concept of moving on from heartbreak. So you went through something pretty remarkable. And um, you've been amazing to open up and share it with your audience. And uh, I really think there's so many powerful lessons that came about became of that. So I'd love for you to share a little bit about what happened and how you got your heart broken and how you've been able to move on from that point, instead of allowing that story or that devastating situation carry on into your life now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for asking that. It's, um, we really decided to, so I have, a, I have a podcast as well called the best life podcast and do it with a co-host and my best friend, Danny J Johnson. Um, and both of us came in to do the podcast together because we have very similar stories. Both of us are married for 10 years. Um, and you know, married to our best friend, like got married kind of early. Um, and in my case, my husband had an affair during the time we were married and he had an affair for about two years. And at the time I didn't find out about it. I actually didn't find out about it until he shared it with me, uh, actually about 18 months after it was already over, um, fell in love with another woman who was also married. Um, and then she ended up moving on to someone else and he was kind of devastated. So what happened was I, we were in a relationship. We were both building our businesses. He has his own fitness company. Um, and you know, things were going great except for that this was going on in the background. I didn't know that. And, and so the reality was nothing was actually different, but he was started, I literally thought he was having a midlife crisis. He was kind of like, he was really short with me. He was snapping a lot. He was just like in a really bad mood all the time. Um, and come to find out he was actually going through heartbreak himself with this other person. Um, and so when I found out about it, it was obviously it was my worst nightmare come true. I mean, for me, I think being in a relationship and having that like one person was something that was really important to me at that time. Of course, I've done a lot of self-work since then. This is probably into 2014. This is a while back, um, that I found out about everything. And 
so because of the situation, we kind of tried to work it out. We were like, well, you know, like he, he wasn't with that person anymore and he wanted to try and work it out. So we spent about a year really kind of just tripping over ourselves and trying to figure out what was going on in the relationship and why this happened. And I was dealing with a lot of my own hurts and, you know, obviously a lot of pain that comes with that and feeling, you know, betrayed and feeling confused and feeling not good enough and all those and feeling embarrassed and tons, you know, shame and not wanting to talk about it with my friends. And, you know, a lot of those things, like literally it was, it was my worst nightmare come true and trying to make sense of it. But I also realized in that time that I was very reliant on this person. And I think it's fine if you're in a relationship, you know, you want to like be open and be vulnerable and you do want to give over at least, you know, some trust to your partner. I think it's important that you are vulnerable and you do share your heart with somebody knowing full well that you might get (laughs) that your heart might get broken. Uh, But I think I was a little bit more dependent than I wanted to be. So at that point I started traveling by myself. I was like, you know what, this isn't secure over here. I got to figure this out. Um, so I started traveling by myself throughout that year, went, lived in Sydney for a month, went to, um, went to Italy for a few weeks, like just was trying to do more things on my own. And what I learned during that time was I learned to be a little more self-sufficient, a little more independent. And meanwhile, we're still trying to communicate. But what I noticed after about a year of doing that was that things weren't changing. Like he was still pretty hung up on this woman. Um, you know, I'm feeling totally just, uh, at the, I feel like at the mercy of, of his decision and feeling very out of my power. And so about a year after I found out about everything, I decided to leave the, the relationship and, and I don't necessarily advocate leaving or not advocate leaving. I think it depends on the situation. I know more, more than half of people who go through infidelity do end up staying together and are able to work it out. And that's great for us. It wasn't a possibility. So I ended up leaving the marriage and I, within a week had a, basically had a new lease across the country in Los Angeles and moved from North Carolina, packed up all my stuff, drove across country and just started a new life. And it was extremely painful. And I had a lot of resentment, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain. And I just didn't know anyone in LA. I showed up and I was like, I don't know anybody. And I got to figure this out. And I spent the first year here just being super lonely and going through that heartbreak, but just allowing myself to like feel all the feels and learn about myself and really just be alone. And I hadn't been alone since I was 18. So it was a it's a lot of healing. And um, now my ex and I are great friends because I think we kept showing up to the conversations. We were brutally honest with each other at every turn. There's nothing about the affair that I don't know. Uh, he shared everything with me and we um, are able to have a better relationship now than we've ever had in terms of communication. Nothing romantic between us, and but wish each other the best and, and are still really good friends. It's crazy. Mm, that is crazy. Do you feel as though looking back on it that there were signs, like signs that he may have been with another woman that you were maybe like not noticing or did none of that really come up for you, Jill? It's such a great question. And, you know, I've been asked many times, you know, I think people assume things like this happen when you're like not having sex or like, um, you know, there's like red flags. And if I'm honest, I don't think there were because really, I think the only kind of red flag that was coming up for me was the fact that, um, we were going through a lot of stuff in our businesses at the same time. And so for me, I just literally thought he was distant and he was like more angry and like he had a shorter fuse because of some of the stuff that was happening in the business and I was stressed out. And so as a result of that, I started holding my tongue a little bit more and I stopped, I stopped really communicating openly because I was maybe, I don't know, scared or wanted to avoid his response. And so, and that really wasn't a theme in the relationship that only kind of happened like the last year. 
before I found out. Like, and I was like, this is, that's why I thought he was kind of having a midlife crisis. Like I was like, I don't understand what's, and I guess it was, it was a sort of midlife crisis, but I didn't really understand his volatility. And then as a result of that, I stopped communicating openly because I was scared of his response. So I think if anything, it was just the lack of communication could have been a red flag. However, I know a lot of couples who, you know, probably don't communicate well, but there's nothing kind of going on in the background. We were, we were, you know, we were, uh, intimate, you know, like three times a week up at like the whole time. So it was, it was, it wasn't that so much. And he always treated me with respect. He always, you know, treated me as his, like his best friend. He always was very loving towards me. Like, so there wasn't any sort of those kind of red flags. Um, and I think sometimes, if you've gone through this or you've listening to this or you've been on a side of this, we can really beat ourselves up about this. You know, there's a lot of shame associated with it. The first place you go, of course, is uh, what's wrong with me? You go, what's wrong with me? I'm not a good enough wife. I'm not thin enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. Like we just go to all those places. And what I really learned and the reason why I can be so open about the experience now is because I've just disconnected from those thoughts. To me, it's not about any of those things. If anything, it's more about my inability and us as a couple, our inability to communicate effectively and honestly. So when things started, like when there was a, a crack in the relationship or there started to be maybe a rift, neither one of us either could communicate about it or didn't know to or didn't want to. And so I think moving forward, I know for me, I'll be a lot more mindful of those kind of things, but it's not because I gained five pounds after a show. It's not because, you know, like I, I didn't put makeup on today. Like it, those are kind of silly things, but you just want to go there at the beginning. Um, so I don't think that there were any glaring red flags, which is why you feel so stupid when something like this happens, right? Cause people go well, like, of course you saw the signs or you just assume that you have a bad marriage or you assume that like I'm a nagging wife and like none of that was the case. And so that's why I think it can be so confusing because we had a really good marriage on the whole. You know, I think you assume when you hear it about someone else, you're like, oh, of course, you know, of course the husband's strayed. Like she's a nagging wife. And like that just was never our reality. So I think that's why it's confusing and that's why it's really shameful and people don't feel comfortable talking about it because they take it on themselves. And I've just disassociated from a lot of those feelings of not good enough and just been like, hey, it's the circumstances. It is what it is. And I want to learn moving forward. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you were able to not take it personally. Would you say that? <laughs> definitely took it personally at the beginning for sure like spent you know the first year really beating myself up about it you know reliving things in my head like what could I have done differently and like I just find that that's a, it's a game that you can never win so for example when it comes to an affair I think sometimes we go like well when did it happen and you know where like and you want to know the answers you want to know the who and the where and the what and you want to know all those details and so as soon as I started finding myself going down that rabbit hole of like I wonder if it happened when I was out of town at a conference and like I wonder if it happened when I was visiting my parents like whatever it is right and then you literally you just become you can drive yourself crazy with those kind of things because what are you going to do not go to a conference what are you not going to go see your friends like we have to be able to live our lives and so I think if anything, you learn not to take it personally, because if you do take it personally, you will drive yourself crazy. And I know for me, that's not the reality that I want. I know that I'm a good person. I know that I'm a good partner. I know that I was even a really good partner to him. And, you know, I don't actually even see, and, and this might be hard for maybe listeners to hear, but I actually don't really even see that he did anything wrong necessarily. 
except that he wasn't honest and he was kind of a coward in that way. I can understand now more so why someone would have an affair than I ever could back then. So back then it was like, there's no reason anyone would ever have an affair or stray in their relationship. Like I can't like, even fathom that. But now I'm like, I kind of get it. I don't think, I still think it's coward, the cowardly. I still think it's, you know, it's uh, gross behavior. I would never condone it but I can certainly empathize with it more than I ever could. And so I think it's more of a communication issue than it really is about him being an asshole. Like that's really not like his personality is not an asshole. I think people don't do this to intentionally hurt the person they're with. I think they are just um, ill-equipped to deal with, you know, the things that are happening in the relationship. And both of us were to a certain extent. I certainly don't uh, take it on. I don't take responsibility for it. I mean, I don't really like blame myself, but I do go, what is, what was my part in this? I certainly would never take responsibility for his actions, but I go like, okay, cool. I can see all angles now. I don't condone the behavior, but I can certainly understand it. Mm -hmm. Were there books or particular people that helped you see things from that perspective, Jill? You know, it was interesting. Right when I found out, I went to Barnes and Noble or whatever the bookstore and I, they had a whole section on infidelity and affairs like that. And I, you know, got a couple of those books and they really did. I didn't feel like they gave me any tools. Um, a lot of the advice was like, you know, you know, he needs to apologize and you need to go to counseling and he needs to take responsibility and he needs to, you know, make him pay for his, you know, and like, I get it. Like, I, like, yes, I do think that all of those things are valid. There needs to be some, uh, responsibility taken and ownership and all those kind of things. But still all the solutions were based on him doing something. I wasn't, I was kind of just like at the mercy of whatever he decided to do. And I didn't like that. I didn't like feeling as though I was waiting around for him to, uh, you know, make amends or take ownership. I didn't like that. I wanted him to, but I, I felt like I was at the mercy of waiting on him. And that didn't make me feel in my power. I needed to do something for me. I needed to like to do something or have a tool or something I could do to feel in my power. And so a friend of mine recommended Byron Katie's work and her stuff was amazing and completely changed my life. So she has a book called Loving What Is, which is probably the first book I would start with if you're interested in this concept. Um, and it has a lot to do with how can I change my perception um, so that I can feel in my power. So what does that do? So I'm not like sitting around waiting on him to change. I can actually change how I see the situation, even if it's hard to do that, right? Like we don't want to, we want to make him pay and we want to, you know, for myself, it was easy to position myself as the victim and position him as the perpetrator. And like, that's what most people do, right? That's the cultural script. If I had told, you know, if I told you, you know, um, that this happened, of course, I'm going to be the victim in the situation. But I personally didn't like the feeling of that. Yes, it was done, quote, to me, but we're both, you know, this is a relationship. So, you know, we both have parts to play. And so I asked myself, how can I change my perception of this? And one of them was, and it was really hard, was giving him the benefit of the doubt. And like I said, empathizing, not condoning the behavior, but going, okay, could I even see it from his perspective? Could I even see, maybe I don't agree with it, but could I even start to see where he was at mentally. Cause I, I certainly did feel that he loved me and I, I know he still loves me, but I, I was like, okay, I can see that. And so can I understand maybe where someone might want to do something like this? And that was really hard. Cause I had to like swallow my pride and I had to like put my ego aside and I had to give up my self-righteousness. But at the end of that, I really did gain a lot more peace because I could empathize and again, not condone the behavior, but at least see it from his perspective. It doesn't give it permission, but it helps me understand it better. And then when I have a different level of understanding, I can more my power. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. That was so beautiful for you to share that there, Jill. I feel like that is a really hard um, piece of the puzzle. I feel like that's a situation that would be challenging um, to go through. And I, I, I really uh, value the fact that you opened up and shared that so vulnerably. So thank you. Yeah. It's, you know, it's one of those things where I've, I've talked about it so much. We talked about the podcast so much. Like I know for some people, this, this conversation can feel really jarring or scary or taboo or something. And I get that. And I certainly felt, you know, I didn't even talk about this for the first year and a half that after I found out. So, um, it takes a lot to get to the point where, you know, you have an understanding of it and then you can like verbalize it. And so, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. I feel like we're actually my ex-husband and I are writing a book on this right now. Um, that's hopefully gonna be out by the end of the year, but it's about our experience and going and like literally just deciding to have a different cultural script than what most people would say. And so, you know, it's easy to just position yourself as the victim or feel like a doormat or feel, you know, um, I felt like a fool for a while, you know, but over time we've just talked about it up and down and I'm really actually proud now of, it's funny because you go from like embarrassment and shame to like actually pride in how you handled things. And so I have a lot of pride around how I handled it and I feel like it's a different direction than some people would like feel comfortable taking. And I don't necessarily feel like everyone has to do what I did, but I definitely feel a lot more uh, strong and healed as a result of forgiving and, you know, feeling in my power and doing things that I did. So yeah, it's, uh, I know if you're listening to this and you're like, wow, I can't believe sharing all this. Like, just know that I've shared this like a thousand times. So it's like really, it's really rehearsed at this point. Cool. Very, very cool. Any other big projects that you're working on alongside the book? Yeah. So I'm doing a, um, a book on moderation through 65 as well. So I have a course called food obsession bootcamp, which is my signature course around the stuff that we talk about with moderation. So I'm turning that into a book. Um, the program itself is I'm hoping that moderation 365 becomes more of a community versus just like my brainchild. Like I want to be able to, for other people to share in that community, what it, what it looks like for them to eat moderately and stuff like that. So it doesn't have to depend on my face being the front, you know, the front of that, that part of the business. I want that to become its own entity. So I'm working hard on that. I might do a certification for that as well. So certifying professionals in moderation 365 and helping them help their clients with that process right now, it's just a direct to consumer program, but I'm, uh, that's my kind of big project for this year. Very cool. Very cool. And where can people find out uh, more about you, Jill? Do you got a website? Sure. Yeah. Um, everything is at jillfit.com. If you guys are interested in kind of like some of the nutrition stuff that we talked about, you can go to jillfit.com forward slash blog. And there's literally like hundreds and hundreds of nutrition blogs there. So if you just want to get your feet wet and you're like, cool, this sounds interesting. Uh, just literally binge read the blogs. There's a ton of information there, a ton of examples. And then, um, on social media, it's just at jillfit. Or if you want to follow the at moderation 365 account, that's where we put all the examples and have the more nutrition talk there. Amazing. And we'll put all that, all of that in the show notes for you guys. And Jill, we're just going to have one final question, which is the way that we wrap up the podcast every time. And that is, how would you like to be remembered? Ooh, it's such a good question. Um, thank you for asking me. Uh, you know, I really would like for people um, to think that I care deeply about their um, about helping them achieve their dreams. I think if I had to say one thing, it is that I hope that people see me as a possibility thinker and someone who is um, a cheerleader for them and someone who sees possibilities for them and almost gives them borrowed permission and borrowed confidence. 
uh, before they kind of feel confident in themselves. I want to be that, that like link that kind of confidence liaison for people to feel like they can build a business that they can, you know, eat moderately, they can get fit, that they can, you know, kind of do something that maybe they didn't feel like they could. So I want to be remembered as a possibility thinker. Mm, I love that. That's actually something that nobody has said so far, Jill. So amazing. Thanks for sharing. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for letting me. I feel like I just talked to you, talked uh, the entire time, but no, that was perfect. That was absolutely perfect. I I felt as though um, when I was talking back and forth with uh, your assistant, I believe I was like, I feel as though Jill's got this under control. We'll just kind of go with the. I'll put some questions down, but you're such a good talker, and uh, yeah, you have a lot of good thoughts to share. So thank you for today. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, it's a, it's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right, ciao for now, babe. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Yeah, bye. That's a wrap for today's episode, guys. And if you're listening to this on the day that it aired, happy Valentine's Day to you. I hope that you're either doing something very special with your loved one or perhaps exercising some self-love on this special day. Other than that, I will catch you guys next week. Hope you have a fabulous week and uh, bye for now. Guys, I'm on a really big mission here and I want to transform 1 million lives, but I need your help. I can't do it alone. I want you to take this episode, share it with just one person. Maybe it's a friend or a family member or maybe a coworker, just one person who could really benefit from the information in this week's episode or perhaps a previous episode. That is how we create impact. That is how we get this movement going. That's how we take people from feeling tired and just not having a fulfilled life and we put them into fulfilling their full potential. So I challenge you guys to share this with just one person. It would mean the world to me. And as always, head on over to iTunes, subscribe so that you never miss an episode. They come out every single Thursday. That is my commitment to all of you guys so that you guys can continually grow, expand, and fulfill your full potential. Have a great week. We'll catch you next time. Lots of love. Ange.